is Apologetic Live with Matt Slick and Andrew Rappaport, part of the Christian Podcast Community. All right. Well, we are live, Apologetics Live, with Matt Slick, myself, Andrew Rappaport, Matt Slick from Karm.org. I am from strivingforeternity.org. We are here every Thursday night. If you want to join in, if you're watching online, maybe on YouTube or, well, if you're on the website, apologeticslive.com, in there, refresh the page if you need to, to see the link to join. That is how you join. We will be doing an open Q&A in a bit. Before that, we're going to have a discussion with, uh, with a friend, Tyler Villa, on the subject of Molinism. But before we get to that, uh, today, I think it was today actually, Matt will correct me if I'm wrong, but today on karm.org was released about 80 articles on King James onlyism. So if you have been dealing with that issue or have friends who believe the King James Bible is the only Bible we should use, uh, go to karm.org, do a search for King James only. And you will see a whole plethora of arguments against it uh, and some good research that was done, mostly by uh, one of the other young guns at CARM, Luke Wayne, uh, being un- came, coming under the, the, the guidance of Matt Slick, which is not a good thing. Luke was sane before he started working with Matt. I'm just saying, I met him in the early times. He was, he was a sane individual. I can't vouch the same anymore, but... <laughs> But he's a good guy. He's written a lot of these articles, uh, some good stuff. I've been started going through them myself. And so what, uh, and I should, I should announce, uh, Matt, that I am alive. I'm here. I'm kicking, uh, for folks who were following some of the threads in Apologetics Live Facebook group this week. We had a, a, a apostle, so he says, uh, an apostle that came in and was dropping some videos of some women preaching. Uh, women pastors. Uh, he decided to support his arguments with uh, some writings from N.T. Wright, who doesn't exactly have the best arguments on the gospel um, uh, with salvation. But uh, but basically, this gentleman told me, uh, of course, he's told me this after he left the group, but he told me that I was going to have a heart attack yesterday, um, that I was not going to make it to the show uh, I got news for folks. I'm here. I didn't have a heart attack. So not only is he not an apostle, that's why he told me I was going to have a heart attack because I said he was not an apostle. He said he was going to prove it. That was his proof. And guess what? I'm here, which means he's not only not an apostle, he's a false prophet. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I think we're going to probably have to do, Matt, one of these times, a whole show on like the apostles and some of these, these folks that, uh, in NAR where they all want to claim an authority, um, that really they, they shouldn't have. So, but, uh, so I want to introduce Tyler Villa and what we're going to do for this first section of, of the show is really just let, uh, Matt and Tyler discuss Molinism. So, uh, Tyler, had a podcast recently. He, he's the host of the Freed Thinker. <clears throat> Before uh, we get started, I just want him to explain Freed Thinker, where that came from, a little bit of his background. This is the first time he and Matt have uh, met each other, kind of even virtually, and been able to talk. He's He had a, a, a podcast on 
uh, Molinism. He's done a lot of work on, on Molinism. I wanted, he had an, an interesting take on his most recent one. I wanted to explain that a little. And then I have a feeling he and Matt are going to have a lot of fun discussion with that. So, uh, Tyler, why don't you come on in, introduce uh, yourself, your podcast, why you came up with that, and a little of your background, and then um, explain some of what you were covering in, in real quick uh, from your podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I think, uh, Matt, you and I have probably crossed paths. We've been in the same circles for a long time, but it's the first time, so it's nice to uh, finally talk. Yeah. Um, the the Freed Thinker podcast um, has actually been going on for longer than it's been the Freed Thinker podcast. It used, used to be logical theism, um, but I was new and I had a terrible web provider and it was logical hyphen theism, dot, but it was just long and complicated. Um, but it really came out of my interest in apologetics. I uh, didn't grow up as a believer. Um, I grew up in a, in a secular home. Um, as an unbeliever, as a atheist in my, in my teens up until actually college, um, when, uh, when I, uh, was caught by Christ, uh, and regenerated and, and brought to belief. So, um, so really a lot of my background was in, uh, in philosophy and naturalism and atheism. And so, um, even as a young Christian, that was where my interest fell. Uh, so to speak. So I, I got into apologetics dealing with uh, right around the time the new atheists um, came about and, and dealing with some of those issues. And so um, I always thought it was funny that they were like, well, we're the free thinkers. And I was like, I'm not under any ecclesiastical authority. Um, at the, I'm an elder now in a denomination. So I guess now I am, but at the time I wasn't. Um, and and even now, I mean, I'm I'm free to believe differently. And if I believe differently, I would just leave the denomination that I'm a part of. Um, so there's, there's no really ecclesiastical or, or authoritarian, um, pressures on what I, what I think, what I believe I go with, what I think is, um, most, most, uh, reasonable. And right now uh, that is, uh, well, not right now, hopefully preservation, uh, perseverance that is to the end of my life. But, um, uh, th- so, so, but in Christ, I've been freed. And so it's kind of a, a play on the free thinker to be the freed thinkers. We are the ones who are freed indeed, uh, in Christ. Um, and, uh, as good presuppositionalists, we think that we're now the ones that are freed to think <laughs> rationally and consistently. Um, so that, that's a big, that's a big part of it. So, um, and, uh, so and I should, I should say this, your most recent one, <clears throat> I haven't listened to it. Matt will appreciate your most recent podcast, but I think I'm going to have to find some reason to, to, to pick at it. You, you, you rip on dispensationalism, I think, from the title at least. It's an article, not a podcast. So it's just, oh, it's the article. It's just, okay. yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just yeah, a couple of verses for why I don't think I could ever be, uh, ever, ever be a dispensationalist. I, I know you're wrong because you will be when you get to heaven. Just saying. <laughs> uh, well. That's all right. Matt just, uh, <laughs> hey, I'll be, I'll be repenting of all kinds of things when I, when I get to heaven. So that, that may be the case, but, uh, no. So, um, it's, it's largely geared towards apologetics lately just because of how my time constraints have been. And I'm working on my masters at RTS. Um, it's been geared much more towards, uh, biblical theology and, and, um, some systematic theology kind of gotten away from apologetics a little bit. Um, so that's, that's where we've been dealing. I've been dealing with Molinism a little bit more and, uh, the age of the earth and Genesis one and some of those, some of those issues. Um, so really now it's the, the freed thinker is, is still, still dips into apologetics, but it's kind of whatever is crossing my plate at the time and what my area of research is at that time. Um, but usually within the realm of apologetics or biblical theology. 
let me ask you really fast. You go to uh, at RTS. Um, did you meet John Frame? No, no. I, I actually uh, I haven't taken any of his classes yet. Oh, he retired. How about uh, Mark Futado? Uh, no, I haven't actually, but I've read uh, a bunch of his works because uh, okay. he's an influence on my view of Genesis. Okay, yeah, because they're both my profs in uh, Westminster in okay in, uh, San Diego. So you know, no biggie, no biggie. Just curious. No, no big deal. So why are you against Molinism? Um, so I have lots of reasons to be against Molinism. Um, one of the things that I did on the on the recent episode um, is I wanted to take a different a different tactic against it. So much of attacks on Molinism are in the sphere of epistemology and dealing with um, and dealing with the uh, you know the grounding objection, the traditional grounding objection against middle knowledge. Um, I wanted to come at actually some metaphysical issues that I think um, arise from from Molinism. Um, Andrew, how much do you want background information on what Molinism teach it is? I, I, you know, there's going to be some folks that maybe it'll be a new term. So if you could give some some high level, there's sure. not time for Q and A. There is an article for folks that want if they go to karm.org, you could do karm.org slash what dash is dash Molinism. Or just type in what is Molinism and they'd find that too for future. Okay. Well, Molinism is, it, it's, it's called Molinism. It's not about, you know, little shrew moles or anything like that. It's based on the teaching of Louis de Molina of the Counter Reformation. Um, and basically it's a, it's a way of trying to reconcile, um, divine sovereignty and, and human freedom or responsibility. Um, and it, Typically affirms, uh, some, some version of libertarian freedom, although there's some movement on that lately. Um, but what it tries to do is to say that the way that you can reconcile it is through this third type of knowledge, this third type of knowledge called middle knowledge. And it's called middle knowledge because it's right in between what is traditionally believed about God's knowledge. So you have God's natural knowledge which is God's knowledge about himself um, and his knowledge of necessary truth. So they're kind of uh, God's knowledge about his, his own nature, his eternality, things like that, and necessary knowledge. So things like um, there are no uh, square circles and things like that. Um, that's on one side. The other side is this free knowledge. That's the knowledge that God has of his creation of the world. Um, he, he has, he has uh, free knowledge that we are having this conversation Right now, that's a super unphilosophical way of saying right now, but he, he has knowledge of, uh, you know, that, that awesome shirt that Matt is wearing. Um, he has knowledge, uh, about what the words that I'm saying. He, he has, he has knowledge that is, uh, of this world, but it's not, it's contingent. It's based on the fact that he actually created and, and actualized this world. Um, that, that pretty much every single Orthodox, uh, Christian will believe in those, those types of knowledge. The Molinist is going to come along and they're going to say, well, in order to respond to some of these problems about um, suffering and evil and to reconcile God's uh, omniscience um, and, and creaturely freedom, um, God has this third type of knowledge called middle knowledge, which is right in the middle of the two. And that is um, that God knows everything that could have been um, if he had created a different world. So he know, basically he knows every... Um, every counterfactual truth. Um, so he knows what it would have happened, um, how I would be feeling right now if I had skipped breakfast this morning. 
his natural, sorry, his free knowledge. He knows how I am feeling because I did eat breakfast, but he has this middle knowledge that he, he know, he knows what, what it would have been like if I had skipped breakfast, um, how cranky I would have been with you guys and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the middle knowledge that God has. Um, and the claim is that, uh, God can, can know everything. He can have uh, perfect knowledge of, of the world, but we're still, uh, we still have, um, libertarian free choice to do what we would do. And God, um, knows what we would have done if he had actualized a different world, right? And this is, this is to give benefit to, um, to the answers to the problem of evil, um, and to reconcile, uh, divine, uh, sovereignty and human freedom. Oh, you, you just mentioned the word libertarian free will. That, that's like the magic. Yeah. All of a sudden, when you mention that, somehow magically late <laughs> appears. He, he just shows oh. up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it three times. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so go over the view that you had, cause I know Matt has, a, has dealt with Molinism quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and I want to, I want to see, I actually want to see his interaction with you on some of what you're bringing up because it was a different way of hearing it. And then I yeah. have questions for both of you. So typically the, the, like I said at the beginning, the response to, to Molinism is to attack it epistemologically. It's to go after their view of, of knowledge. Uh, and usually the, one of the stronger ones is to say, well, they have a grounding problem, right? There, there is, if, if there is no actual, um, if there is no actual fact that makes God's knowledge true, then there's nothing, there's, there's no, what are called truth makers for it. So there's no, there's no explanation for why God would have this middle knowledge, right? So, so in, in reformed traditions, we would say that God has natural knowledge, but it's rooted in his decrees. The reason why God knows what is happening in the world is because God's decreed what's going to happen in the world. That's why he can, that's why he can know it. Um, and we would actually say, well, God has absolute, um, uh, counterfact, you know, exhaustive counterfactual knowledge, not because he knows these in in this abstract way these other possible worlds but because god has the natural knowledge that his whatever he decrees comes to pass and so he can know the the counterfactual facts of if i had decreed x then x would be true and and so he knows what he didn't decree and so he can still have effectively what is what is the outcome of middle knowledge but without the grounding problems Right, so there's there's this whole grounding objection, and you go after epistemology uh, epistemologically. I want to come along and say, okay, well, yes, you. Ha- I think those are absolutely valid criticisms. I'm not trying to downplay them, but I think we can come at it metaphysically also. I think there's other problems that arise from Molinism. Um, one of the big ones being, and I, I, I give a whole list of them, but one of the big ones is a different type of grounding problem. Um, so let me back up. One of the things that, that they're going to say, that Amolus is going to say, is that when God was creating the world, he could look over a range of possibilities and pick whichever one he thought was best. We want to be careful and not accuse Molinus of um, a greatest possible world theology. A greatest possible world theology is, is kind of the original ontological argument of God. God chose the, the greatest possible world um, to bring about the, the most people being saved or whatever it is. Because at the end of the day, you could always pull the, I always want to say, yeah, guano, but that's bat poop. Guiano, right? Is the, the, the priest. Um, you could always say, well, couldn't there be, you know, one more person that's saved? You could always kind of improve it. 
they're going to fall back and say, well, there's, there's, there's a best possible world for his, for his outcome. And he looks over these, these, these possible worlds and he act, chooses one to actualize. And he actualizes one for his greatest purposes, right? And it could be a whole number of, of reasons, right? Which gets them in trouble later on anyways with some of their assumptions we can get to. But when an objection comes up, we're going to come along and we're going to say, well, you're trying to maintain libertarian freedom. And one of the ways you want to get out of the problem of evil, the problem of suffering is to say that, that it's libertarian freedom is such a good, um, that God is limited on the types of worlds that he could create, um, in which you have people who have libertarian freedom and freely choose God. Um, and that he's limited in the, in that number of worlds. And so the Molinist is going to want to say that there, there are some worlds that are, that are what are called logically possible or strictly logically possible. Um, and then there are other worlds that are not, that are feasible, right? So there, if we come along and say, well, why couldn't God have created a world uh, where everybody freely believes? The Molinist is going to come along and say, well, it might not be feasible for God to create that type of world because given that amount of freedom, it might not be possible that there's a world where everybody freely believes, right? Given, given that much creaturely freedom, there might not be a, a feasible world where God can create libertarian freedom and had, have everybody believe. So they have this, this feasibility issue. This is where the first area where I'm going to call foul on it. Um, when we're, when we're dealing with feasibility, this, this comes from the realm of philosophy and feasibility comes around when you have limited resources, right? So I might want to create, you know, a best possible business, um, but I have limited resources to do it. So how I can implement a business model, I'm limited on what I can do. So I have, I have logically possible business models that I can do, but with my resources, they might not all be feasible. It might, we might even say that after creation, God has limited what he can do in creation. So, um, the way that God has created, uh, created the cosmos, he's now, he's now limited what he can do, uh, based on, uh, say his promises, um, and he can't, you know, revoke his guarantees types of things. He might have kind of bound himself once he's created, um, to do A, B, and C and not X, Y, and Z. Um, even if we grant that, you still have creation. I'm going to say metaphysically, you're dealing with an omnipotent being prior to there being any creational activity. And so I see, I see no merit to making this distinction prior to the act of creation where something might be logically possible, but not feasible for an omnipotent God to create. Um, so the, the example that I give is I, I think there's logically a possible world that has the same population as the actual world, same number of humans, where everybody freely believes in God. There's no logical contradiction. There's no, there's no logical reason why that wouldn't be the case. The Molinist typically is going to come along and say, well, by God's middle knowledge, he might know that there, that those people wouldn't freely believe. That's moving the goalposts. It's actually changing the terms. So let's say, let's say we label this, this world X world. In X world, you have the same number of people as the actual world, and they all freely choose God. God would have, if you're, if you're a Molinist, God would have middle knowledge such that he would know, if I actualized X world, then 
this number of people would freely believe, right? So if God has that, that, that middle knowledge, that counterfactual knowledge of what could be, there's now no reason why he couldn't actualize that world. And for the Molinists to come back and say, well, it might be the case that in a world with sufficiently number of free creatures, um, that they wouldn't freely believe, what they've done is said, well, God didn't actually have middle knowledge of that counterfactual world in the first place. Because they've now changed the features of X world. They've made it Y world, where it's that number of people, but they don't all freely believe. So they actually have to change the conditions of the world to make it not feasible. But in doing so, they've just moved the goalpost and they've made it no longer the same world that God had the middle, the, the, the counterfactual middle knowledge about. I don't know if that kind of makes, that makes sense or if you want to hash some of that out. Yeah. Dude, man, I, I like what you're saying. <clears throat> I've always wondered about Molinism and the issue of middle knowledge because that's, that's where I think it's problematic that combined with libertarianism. Because, you know, you're reformed, I'm reformed, and the Bible clearly tells us that uh, the person that's a slave of sin is restricted uh, to only choose sinful things. So there is no possible world in which a totally depraved individual will ever choose Christ. So the issue of making a possible world the best of whatever, where most people are saved, doesn't make any sense. It's one of, one of the weaknesses I've found in Molinism. It's presupposition of um, libertarianism. And um, <clears throat> uh, we could talk, discuss the issue of why libertarian free will is not true and why it's against scripture. But um, I like what you said. I've taken a little bit of notes, actually, to comment on a few of the things. I, I didn't start doing that until just a couple of minutes ago. But um, the grounding issue, it's one of the things I've discussed with some Molinists is, well, how is it that God can know exactly what will be done in different circumstances if he is the one who has to create the circumstances to begin with. And the problem here I'm seeing is that it's like God creating something, creating their free will, putting them in a circumstance. God just happens to know what they're going to do in that circumstance. And they're going to have to say that's how he's grounding it. But I see the problem of open theism uh, creeping into the back door when you start um, presupposing libertarianism and move away from the necessity of God's decrees. When he decrees what comes into existence, he decrees everything that comes into existence. And it's either by direct or indirect causation, but he decrees it, and I totally agree with you, this is why he foreknows, because the foreknowledge means that he's decreed it to exist. That's why he foreknows. It, it cannot fail, which includes also the necessity of his own knowledge of his own actions um, as he decrees everything. Um, yeah, I, I, so I, I also think that Molinism logically entails open theism. Um, I grant that there can be Molinists who hold it inconsistently and don't affirm open theism and think they can get around it. So <clears throat> to that point. Well, also, it also affects the nature of what the future is because if you think about it, someone who would open to open theism, let's talk, tackle open theism because there's remnants of it creeping in, uh, like I said, to the back door here, because of an open theist. How, what's the future? The future is an ontologically separate thing from the actual awareness and nature of God's existence. It is something yet to occur. It has its own, uh, well, we call it a potential infinite. It's been created by God and goes on without his um, absolute knowledge of all things. I find that to be very problematic. It just makes God a good guesser. In fact, uh, did you hear the one about uh, the open theist God when uh, his plan didn't work? He said, uh, go to plan B. 
It was bad. It was not that good. <laughs> um, well, to go on that, so you, there, there's there's another issue that that goes into this, and I and I deal with this as part of part of the metaphysics, is that um, if you ask the question, is someone free to do contrary than what God foreknew? And and uh, and categorical free will and things like that. The the question is on, on Molinism. If Molinism is true, um, if they have libertarian freedom, can they do something other than what God foreknew? The Molinist is going to have to say yes because they're trying to get around any type of compatibilism, right? The problem is once you do that, you're stuck with open theism because if somebody, if it's possible to do something other than what God foreknow, God cannot foreknow that. They can't just assume that omniscient, omniscience as a brute fact because those facts would just be precisely categorically the type of thing God can't know. Um, and so what happens is even if God is right a hundred percent of the time in, in what he, in what he foreknows about creation, what's going to happen is as creation unfolds, his knowledge of our free choices would be confirmed to him that his knowledge was correct. He effectively can't know that he knows because even if he knows, let's say he says, you know, at time X or time T1, John would choose to do X and he might have, you know, say omniscience foreknowledge about John choosing X. But if John has the ability to not do X at T1, Contrary to what God foreknows, God cannot know that his knowledge is true until T1 when it happens. And so what actually happens is even if God is a good guesser, even if God is right 100% of the time, God needs it confirmed to him that his his knowledge is true. So he's actually still uh, learning that his foreknowledge happens to be correct. Um, and so that's a, that's another metaphysical issue with with uh, absolutely with modernism. Now, There's I've a heard... theological issue also because how would God know which sins to impute to uh, Christ on the on the cross if He does not know in the future exactly what sin someone's going to do? Then it, you'd have to deny the legal uh, excuse me the penal substitutionary atoning work. Yep, it gets even it gets even more bizarre than that. So well. It's hard to get much more serious than that, that's but it gets more—it yeah. it, it gets more bizarre in that. Um, so one of one of the outworkings of of, of Molinism, actually one of the outworkings of trying to reconcile libertarian freedom with sovereignty, just full stop, and all of them, is that you get evil as kind of a, a a necessary byproduct of the system, right? So that they're trying to explain the problem of evil by saying, well, libertarian freedom is as as of such a good that God allows evil because the freedom is, is such a good. That's one of the reasons, right? That's part of the theodicy. Yeah, it's hand-tight, I guess. That's why he has to allow evil. But but if you think about it, so evil generally is is kind of a, a necessary byproduct. But what that means is also if God if if God is out of control of necessary evils generally, that means that he's out of control of every individual instance of evil and suffering. Right, which means that the Christian actually can't have confidence that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Because it might be the case on Molinism or on any of these theodicies that that specific evil, that rape of a child, that murder, that death, that theft, whatever it was, it does, it wasn't actually there because God has redemptive purpose and decreed it to happen for redemptive purposes. It might be there as a sloppy, uh, necessary byproduct of the good of allowing freedom. Um, and so it's, you, you, you actually just open the door to having a whole bunch of non-redemptive facts, um, that, that creep into God's creation such that if bad things happen to us, 
we can't know that they're actually that God has a morally sufficient reason for that specific act. He might just have a morally sufficient reason for allowing just bad things to happen generally, but that evil might just be purely gratuitous. Um, and so you have a big problem. There. Yeah, in my open theist studies, because this, these are uh, they're related. The open theist general response is that God can still work things together. Because he's so powerful and so good and so knowledgeable in the present. And that was an interesting issue of how Mullinism relates to the present as right. far as God's knowledge goes. But um, in the present, God knows things um, all the time, everywhere. It's complete and total. And so, therefore, he's able to work it because he it can extrapolate. And he's he's very good at it. So that's how you can work all things out for good. That's just their answers. Of course, it's not a very good answer, but that's that's the, right. the answer I came across. Yeah, and and one of the reasons why that's a bad answer because if God if God doesn't desire let's let's say a shooting if God doesn't desire a shooting but it's a it's an outworking of evil in the world <clears throat> in one sense we can say okay well if, well if God designed and decreed the world and he has he has uh, there's there's redemptive value one day a, a year later a hundred years later from that action we don't we don't know the ripple effects of it we can say that right. God has good purpose for that there's redemptive value for it. If that answer is correct, that means God sits there, doesn't want it to happen, sees it happening, doesn't know the future outcomes of it, and still doesn't stop it, even though he doesn't want it to happen. Um, and so I, I just, I don't, I just don't find that answer compelling at all. I, I think it makes God gratuitously malevolent. I like that. Good reformed <laughs> theology. What? You know, one of the things I've heard both of you guys, you, you guys have, have brought up when t- discussing Molinism, because they, though, I've, I've heard you guys both deal with Molinists and discussing it, and the issue being of, well, why couldn't God create a world where everybody's saved? And they say, no, that's not possible, which I, I've heard both of you guys say, well, why, why wouldn't it be? I mean, why couldn't it be? But could it, I mean, could it be easier? Because their argument is, well, there, there's just too many people, and, Someone would, you know, for, for God to do that. But I mean, why couldn't God have, if, if Molinism is true, why couldn't God have just chosen the world where Adam and Eve never sinned? I mean, there's just two well, people. There's two, two questions there, but in Molinism, uh, because of libertarian presuppositions, therefore he can't create a world where everyone's going to be saved because it's up to their free will. How would he know that any particular world he would create would bring about the salvation of everybody since he cannot absolutely know their free will choices? Yeah, and, and the conditionally known. But but in in Molinism, right? He he sure. knows all the different worlds that possible worlds, possible worlds that could have happened. Why didn't then, he choose the one that they don't sin? Well, he could only have hypothetically possible worlds in the sense that he could only know potentials in his own mind. But still, you understand how how uh, deleterious libertarian free will is. Deleterious means hidden harmful effects. So libertarian free will undermines the the greatness of God, and it uh, undermines the issue of God's foreknowledge and decrees. And what it does is it removes the great majesty from God and places it to some degree upon man and his ability. So therefore, God must react and work according to what he sees man do. And this this is why I ultimately I've said I haven't said it today yet. But I believe uh, Molinism is sophisticated humanism because it's man-centered theological system about man's will, man's ability that God foresees, God 
Now, the word react is not the right word. And I know Mullins wouldn't say it. I understand what they're trying to get at, but, but I'll use it for now. But God reacts based on what he foreknows or what he knows that they do at any particular time, then he will decree some other things in relationship to that. So God is not, it does not possess complete aseity, uh, eternal independence in the sense of his knowledge, um, is dependent, dependent in some part upon the actions of God. And just like what Tyler is saying, that God doesn't know uh, his full knowledge what will actually happen until it actually happens. He knows what could happen, but he know in Molinism he knows what will happen at that particular time. This is why I, I like that he brings up it's similar to, to open theism in a lot of respects, because it is. Both of them necessitate to some degree of prevenient grace. Um, particularly when they, they the good Molinists, if you can call the good ones, actually affirm total depravity, um, and then they get into certain issues. What happens with prevenient grace gets into uh, the picture, and then why does some believe one, some don't, and they go back to libertarianism. But we can talk about libertarianism. Or I can put that to bed. I can rest that one. It's easy to defeat yeah. scripture, but yeah. Yeah, and to go back to your question, Andrew, this is this is where they they mm-hmm. go between um, you know uh, strict logical possibility and feasibility, right. um, and and they're going to say, well, you know, that world might be strictly logically possible, but it's not feasible because in any in any world with sufficiently free creatures, that many of them, um, it, it it might be the case. And this is this is the, so the, here's the funny thing. So they're they're saying is it might be the case that in such a world, no one will freely choose. Therefore, that world isn't possible. The Molinist loves to accuse objectors of modal fallacies. That's the biggest modal fallacy in the world to go from it, it, it might be the case to therefore it is the case. Um, that, that's, that's just a huge modal fallacy for folks because I don't know if everyone knows that. Uh, a, a modal fallacy is, is essentially, I don't know how to describe it without being even more technical. Uh, it's, it's improperly allocating, uh, modal operators. So it's, it's moving from, uh, it's, it's, uh, possibly the case to it's necessary the case or it's possibly necessary to it's necessary. Um, so it's, it's, it's the wrong distribution of modal operators from one side of an occasion to another. Um, but so here's, here's the thing that I come back to. So if you think of every free choice as a coin flip, um, good choice, bad choice. Right, right, wrong. If we think of right and wrong in black and white, we know it's more messy than that. But if you think of it in right and wrong, um, heads or tails, that's like saying that there's a, there's, there's a logically, there's a strictly logical possible world where a billion pennies can all be flipped and they all land heads. But it's not feasible for God to create that world because in a world with sufficiently enough coins, it's not possible for God to actualize that world. Because in that many worlds with that many coins, it might be the case that not all of them are going to land heads. Yeah, but 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 to take a case of saying just two people being heads, right? So why can't why can't he go back and and just and just eliminate the? Why can't he have the world where Adam and Eve sinned? Maybe there's a billion logically possible worlds where Adam and Eve sinned, and there's one where they didn't. There's one with no fall, which means no sin entered the world anywhere ever, right? Why can't he go back and do that? That's a great objection. I think that's that's fantastic. But what the what the Molinist is going to say is that, well, in in that world, it might be the case that the outworking is um, is is sufficiently lacking compared to what it comes about in the actual world. Um, it might have less, maybe less people reproduce, maybe whatever. But then we can say, well, isn't there a logically possible world where Adam and Eve don't sin and you get the same amount of people <laughs> as the actual? Why can't that? Happen? There's just it's inexplicable why some of them are feasible and others aren't, except for one works with the theory and one doesn't. Um, but but so another another kind of going along with this, another major problem I have uh, metaphysically with Molinism um, is that 
a lot of times the focus is on God's knowledge in relation to creation. And they're going to say, well, well, God's knowledge is, is causally a feat, right? You can't say that creation is deterministic because God foreknows, right? Because foreknowledge isn't, isn't causally determinative. There's some issues with that, but even if we agree with it, I'm going to say, okay, well, I'm not going to attack you based on the epistemology. I'm going to come based on the epistemology or based on the metaphysics because God doesn't, um, God's knowledge isn't the only thing that God does. God actualizes a world, right? There, there's, there's, there's a metaphysical act where God chooses to actualize this one world over this other world. And so the example I give is let's imagine that you have two worlds. One of them is the actual world and one of them is, is world one. They're identical in every single possible way, except in world one, that isn't the actual world. At some time, there's a person named John and John freely has a, an abstract thought that pops into existence and out of existence with no uh, repercussions whatsoever on the timeline following. Um, it doesn't replace anything that's in the actual world. So the only difference between the actual world and that world is this one free choice that has no other ramifications whatsoever. God is now, let's say he's eliminated all the other options. He's like, I'm down to these two choices. Let's, okay, the Molinist, I'm not actually saying he goes through this process. I, I'm, get over that character. That's not what I'm trying to say. But let's say he, 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 He's limited down to these two choices. He says, okay, I'm going to create the actual world or world one. He actualizes one of these worlds. What is the causal determination that causes the difference between the action, that, that, that difference between if John has that thought or doesn't have that thought? It's not God's foreknowledge of that. It's the fact that God actualized one world in which that thought would exist or doesn't exist compared to the other world where that thought doesn't exist, right? So God's decree and actualization of a certain world is causally determined. He's caused that world with that specific propositional content to exist, right? That's, that is, that is a causally determinative action um, that determines the outcome, that determines that world as opposed to a different world. Um, so even if it's weak causal, uh, causation, um, or secondary causation, uh, which, which we would affirm as com uh, compatibilists, it still is a causally determined thing that, that is going to guarantee that what happens in that world is guaranteed to happen compared to what could have happened if he'd actualized another world. Um, so that's another metaphysical problem, um, with Molinism that I, that I find. Good. Vincent, you, you had a question you wanted to ask of, I guess, Matt and, uh, and Tyler. But you gotta unmute yourself. How about now? Can you hear me? Yeah. There you go. All right. So, and, and I'm, I do apologize because I didn't catch everything y'all been saying so far. I'm a little late. But I, my, my question is, in, in do, you, do you, either of y'all believe like, and I know both Molinism and open theism was brought in, so, so do y'all believe that this systems kind of were invented as a, a means to dealing, dealing with the problem of evil? And, and if so, do, what, what would they use to justify God causing these things, whether, like I said, whether directly or indirectly as God doing evil? 
Um, I, so I don't think Molinism was created directly as a, a theodicy to get around the problem of evil. Um, Molinism came about during the Counter-Reformation um, specifically to start defending uh, the, the Catholic view of, of, of um, an un- unencumbered will, basically. They were, they were fighting against the... The Reformation and the Calvinists and the, the Lutherans who were, who were going more towards, uh, you know, a total depravity, um, justification by faith alone, uh, regeneration preceding faith, things like that. And so they needed to, um, uh, defend against those and defend the Catholic view of the will. Um, that came about. Molinism has just seen a heyday, a resurgence in, in apologetics. Um, because it has ramifications for the problem of evil, um, as, and problem of suffering and, and explaining some of these. So, but that wasn't the impetus for why it was, why, why Molina, uh, kind of formulated it, I don't think. They just didn't like Protestants, huh? (laughs) Well, they they didn't, they didn't like our, our, uh, our, our soteriology and our, and our anthropology. Still don't. (laughs) It's true. Matt, you know, I think Mm -hmm. you and I discussed this as well. Or did you want to respond to, to Vincent? No, I think I agree. Uh, it was started by a Jesuit priest, uh, Molina, in response to the Catholic, to the Protestant Reformation, and where Protestants would teach God's decrees from eternity. And to oversimplify, Catholic Church said, "No, it's up to man's free will, man's ability, not God's simple decree." And so, um, middle knowledge was invented by um, Molina. Well, let's just say invented. Developed, codified uh, as a means to justify uh, human libertarian uh, issues and freedom, uh, so that God was not the determiner of all these things. What they fail to understand, though, and a lot of the Molinists do, is that God can directly cause someone to do something and also not be the one responsible for any sinful actions. And that's revealed in Scripture, and there's a logical way that can be defended as well. And so the it, real issues of Molinistic, in my opinion, the real issue of Molinism is trying to um, handle the issue of theodicy, the problem of evil, and relate it to man's freedom. Um, and so uh, they they fail. Sorry, distracted. They fail to see that that there are answers to these issues. Um, that's a, a, a very simple way of, of saying it. So, you know, one of the things I've noticed, and Matt, you've you and I have some mutual friends uh, that are Molinist, right, Eric? Um, yeah. And so one of the things I've discovered, and I, I know I've, I've, I've talked to you about this in private, but it's good to discuss this, is to me it seems that Molinism is more of a philosophical argument yes. than it is a theological argument. Um, I, know, I know your position on that, but can you explain why you think that is? Well, I, I talk to Eric Hernandez uh, every now and then, and, and uh, he's a staunch Molinist. And I've told him numerous times, I said, Eric, um, and I, you know, I like Eric, he's a good guy. But I said, Eric, you know, you're more of a philosopher than a theologian. And you use philosophy to interpret the Bible. And he says, you have to use philosophy to interpret the Bible. And I said, no, use the Bible to interpret philosophy. I said, it must be the word of God that's inspired, not man's philosophy that's not. You have to go to the word of God and see what it is. And for example, in the issue of... Um, of the will. Um, I think it's Second Samuel 24, 1, the anger of God incited David to number Israel. And yet, uh, in verse 10 of the same chapter, David sinned by numbering Israel. Well, what we see here is the, the scriptures where God is, his anger is inciting him to do it, 
And when he does it, he's one responsible for uh, the sin involved with it. How is that possible? Well, we could also go to the other verse. I think it's Second Chronicles 22.1, I think, where it says Satan incited David to number Israel. So you have three parties acting on, on David, God, Satan, and David. And yet David is the one responsible for his actions. So when we say we go to the scriptures, and the scriptures teach this idea that I believe that Molinism tries to refute, the scriptures themselves declare certain things. And there are certain places when you when you just should say, no, we can't figure this out perfectly and completely. We will leave it alone. Because if you don't leave it alone, you end up with errors like open theism and you end up with errors like Molinism which are humanistically based, or they have to reduce the majesty and the knowledge and capability of God in order to justify their philosophical positions that they impose upon Scripture and then impose upon God to elevate man. That's why I call it humanistic philosophy. So um, anyway, I, I talked to, to him about that, and, and that is the case. Every single time I talk to a Molinist, it's philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. That's what it is. When I quote scriptures and show them, it's philosophy, philosophy. In fact, I talked to Eric once about uh, libertarian free will, and I said, look, Jesus said that he could do nothing of his own initiative. Um, if he did nothing of his own initiative, yet he had free will, that would mean that God predetermined what Jesus was to do. That's compatibilism. And uh, I don't remember his exact answer. He came back with something. It can't be compatibilism because of such and such. I remember thinking, that doesn't make any sense. And we went on to some other topic uh, because he talked a lot quickly. But uh, with the issue of yeah, he does. And he's a good guy. But uh, with the issue of, of the inspiration of Scripture, which also supports the idea of compatibilism, compatibilistic free will, and uh, the issue of Christ himself, which clearly exemplifies compatibilistic free will, we can go to the Scriptures and say, look, the Scriptures teach, for example, compatibilistic free will in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example of what it means to be a human being. He was completely under the will and the foreordained plan of God in every single detail, yet Jesus, of course, had free will and was able to do what he desired, but he only desired to do what the Father told him to do. He said, I could only do that which I see the Father do. When we get to the David numbering Israel thing, we see the issue here of David acting freely, yet two forces were acting upon him, but yet he's the one responsible. And though he may not be able to answer it perfectly, we can say this for sure. That's what the scriptures teach. And though it's... It, um, it teaches them that that can be paradoxical, and it does. And we have discussions on how that can work, and I think there's ways to work it out. But the thing is, the, the Molinists would have to adopt, well, that's because of middle knowledge, or that's because of this, and they have to apply their philosophical view in order to do this. But the scripture says don't well, – I jumped ahead. I believe the scriptures say don't do that kind of a thing. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, do not exceed what's written. Now, I don't have any problem trying to explain, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity and hypostatic union and communicatio idiomatum and certain doctrines and things. I don't have any problem trying that. And you have to use logic, a little bit of philosophy, but you better be very, very careful how far you take it. Because as soon as you start speaking for God in areas that he has not revealed in Scripture, then you're on thin ice. And I say, I told Eric, I told other Molinists, don't go very far. Because you don't know what God, um, why God has not revealed this answer. And for you to speculate philosophically, I say, is dangerous. Because you may come up with something you think is right, but may be wrong. Why is it God has not revealed the answer? Because he doesn't want us to know the answer. Because it's beyond us, so leave it alone, lest we come into heresy. That's, that's my position on that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, and, you know, not to be the Calvinist that quotes Romans 9, Romans 9 or anything. I'm going to be that guy, though. 
uh, is that hey, Leighton's not here. <laughs> uh, I agree with Matt that, that, and I've said this a lot of times. One of the problems with with a lot of these uh, issues around Molinism, libertarian freedom, is that they're taking their philosophical concepts and they're backing their way into biblical theology rather yeah. than the other way, whether other way around, um, and they end up in principle affirming the objections of Paul's interlocutor in Romans nine. So they end up affirming, well, it wouldn't be fair of God to judge someone if they couldn't resist his will, that wouldn't be fair. Well, that's just the objection that Paul is getting and responding to. And they say, well, it would, it would be unjust of God to judge someone who couldn't resist. Well, that's, that's the other objection in Romans nine from Paul's interlocutor. If you're, you know, I'm okay with trying to, you know, philosophically try to work things out, but you gotta, you gotta be aware, you gotta be able to stop down the road and, be, and look around and say, how did I get here? I'm now in a position where I'm expressly, almost verbatim, word for word, agreeing with an objection that Paul is responding to. I gotta turn around and start over because I'm no longer within the realm of, of, of what actually is an application of the biblical text. Right. Um, and so, the, and they'll do this, um, they'll do this with, with the so-called, you know, Molinistic support passages. Um, so, you know, you have, uh, Matthew 11, where he talks about, uh, what would have happened in, I think it's, what is it? Corazon and Bethsaida. Right. Yeah. Um, if, 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 what it had been, what it be, what scene had been happened there, they would have repented. Um, in, uh, first Samuel 23, um, what would have happened, um, if David had gone back to Kayla um, would they have been, and, and God says, yes, if you go back, they'll kill you type of thing. And the Molinists is going to come and say, see, God has middle knowledge. And I'm going to say, no, that's, that's not having God. That's not, you don't need middle knowledge for that. You can have simply God's omniscience, his counterfactual knowledge of if he had decreed that he knows what would have happened, but that's not it. Exactly or, right. Or just simple, just simple counterfactual hyperbole. Right. I can say something, you know, if, if, if I have someone I'm working with and they're just not getting it, I could say, I could, I could tell this to my dog and they would get it. I don't actually mean that there's a counterfactual world, uh, another possible world where if I told my dog this, they would get it. It's a, it's a way of speaking hyperbolically in judgment about the person. Jesus saying, look, if this had happened in these horrible cities, even they would have got it. You don't have to invent this whole metaphysically third type of knowledge. To explain that, we, we just have normal rules of rhetoric that explain that. Um, and we, we don't need to go down this whole realm. Well, you do have to explain it that way if you deny the doctrine of total depravity and God's absolute sovereignty. Fair. Yeah. You, you would need, you need to do some gymnastics to, to do it. Hence, you're right. Middle knowledge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I believe that all, I see, I remember when I first started hearing this, I'm going, well, wait a minute. All of God's knowledge is free. All of it's natural. All of it is eternally what God has. There's no time when he learns. There's no time when he extrapolates. There's no time when he has to do anything prior. It's just always eternal. And I see the Molinists as saying, well, there are times in God's knowledge what he does. They call them moments and stuff, but there's, there's these moments in God's knowledge in which certain things I can't say occur because they don't want to use the word occur. But there are times when things change logically for God's knowledge of what must be or must not be as they're related to things. And this reminds me of the super infralapsarianism uh, debate and, and issue. If God's knowledge is always eternal and of every possibility, then naturally speaking, all of God's knowledge is just simply natural. I consider middle knowledge to be part and parcel to uh, the very natural knowledge that God would have eternally. 
That's 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 how I view it. So I, I agree. I think I think his middle knowledge is actually it's just easier. Like I said earlier, it's it's just subsumed over his natural knowledge. He he knows that if he decreed something, it would come to pass, and he knows what he has and hasn't decreed. Uh, I, I, I don't think you need to create a third type of knowledge. I am with you on that one. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been saying for a long time. I, it's all of his knowledge is is his natural knowledge, because he because you know natural knowledge he knows all possible events. Uh, yeah, but they can only exist. First, first of all, all possible exi- events only exist in the mind of God. He's chosen to actualize only one set of of possibilities. But then again, we get into the issue of uh, you brought this up a little bit. And some of the th- one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is could God have created another world a different way? And I don't believe so. I lean towards he could not have. Now, in one sense, yeah, he has the power and the ability to do it. But in another sense, no, because I believe that God does everything. Absolutely the best. There's no second best with God. There is no uh, second guessing. There's nothing. And that he necessarily, because of the nature of his omniscience, omnipotence, omnisapience, everything, will all, always and only do that which is absolutely the very best for the criteria and stuff that comes out of his very nature and his essence, which I, I believe is ultimately for his own glory. And I believe that this world that we live in is the greatest world for the greatest glory of God. Not for the purpose of people being saved, because the Molinist, in my opinion, goes humanistic and says, well, well the, great, the greatest necessity is for the most people to get saved. Well, that's humanism. It's man-centered. I say, no, the greatest issue is the glory of God. Not the salvation of man, but the glory of God, and he's glorified in their salvation as well as their damnation. And I suspect that since God knows all things, can't do anything second best, I don't believe he can, that's just my position, um, that therefore this is the greatest world for his greatest glory, and that this is how it works. So let me ask you, do, you know, so we've we've explained it kind of philosophically, defining it, what's the problems with it, scripturally. What are your arguments against Molinism? Why do you see it failing scripturally? First John 3.20, God knows all things. And the only way he can know all things we know is because he decrees things, because he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And he declares the end from the beginning. He is in complete control from eternity. And the only reason we exist is because God created us to exist. And every single thing that's going to exist exists because God has directly or indirectly decreed it, including our free will choices. And our free will choices work against um, the idea of libertarian free will. Let me put, rephrase that. Uh, the biblical doctrine of total depravity, the effect of total depravity upon human free will, means that the, uh, that the person who's enslaved to sin, who's unregenerate, can only do sinful things. He will never freely choose God. Period. And so these are the kinds of scriptures that I, I can quote to you if you want that demonstrate, in my opinion, uh, further problems inside of Molinism and refute it. Amen. So, uh, yeah. So, to, you know, to me, it's simple. It's, it's just simple. Total depravity. The Bible says you cannot come to me unless it's been granted to you from the Father, John six sixty five. It's been granted to you to have faith. Well, this means God does these things at certain times according to his will. And so this idea that uh, Molina wanted to come up with and the reputation of that very idea was to come up with middle knowledge. 
What the reformers were doing was saying, well, John 6, 65, you can't come to me unless it's been granted to you in the Father. John, uh, Philippians 1, 29, uh, it's been granted that you believe. Second Timothy 2, 25, it's been granted that you have repentance. You believe because you're appointed to eternal life. Acts 13, 48, you're caused to be born again. First, uh, Peter 1, 3, you're born again, not of your own will. John 1, 13. These are the, the things that are, are there because we are enslaved to sin, Romans 6, 14 through 20, the unbeliever is. He's a, he can do no good, for Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. Cannot receive spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Harsh, desperately wicked, deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9. Full of all kinds of evils, Mark 7, 21, 23. So, you know, it's because those things are there, that's what the nature of, of human free will is in an unregenerate state. They're incapacitated. They cannot come to God. And this is the Reformed position. Why? Because it's the biblical position. What do the Jesuits say? What do the Roman Catholics say? What do the humanists say? No. Man can do it under the right conditions. There are no right conditions, unless you want to include the right condition being God's irresistible grace and regeneration preceding faith that enables us, and then he grants it to, to believe. But that's not what they mean. They mean, in a libertarian sense, all a particular person needs is the right information at the right time, and he has that ability to choose. And just like what Tyler was saying, then God then will actualize the knowledge of what he has hoped or might or expected to come about. And then he says, okay, now I know for sure at this moment that he has, that decision is made. This is heresy. And it's just, it's humanism. And it needs to be rooted out of the church. And people need to stop believing this. I call it kindergarten theology, this amateur theology that, that inserts prevenient grace and man-centeredness and human-centeredness that God himself, his knowledge is restricted, his character is restricted, his, his omniscience, every, just restricted to some degree for the sake of human freedom and human stuff so that God isn't the one held responsible for, um, for evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. My spiritual Tourette's is getting ready to kick in. But I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> so stop tell, it. tell us how you really feel. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I think, um, I think piggybacking on this, I, I'm not going to add much theological content. What, what I'm going to say is, is more of a rhetorical strategy. Is that the Reformed have to stop giving in to the equivocation that the that the Molinists and the Libertarians and the Semi-Pelagians and Arminians and and everyone plays, where where they they equivocate between free will and libertarian free will, so that. So many times you hear a Calvinist and they'll say, do you believe in free will? Oh, no, I don't believe in free will. Yes, you do. We believe, yes, we, do. In subst- we believe in substantive choice. We believe we have a free will. We choose what we desire to do. Um, and I choose to do what I desire to do. It's just, I don't have libertarian freedom. I choose accordance with my nature. There's all that with it in accordance with what God has decreed. There you go. There's, Preach there's, it, there's brother. Things. Um, and so we really, really need to stop giving in to this because what happens is, the Molinist and Libertarian freedom, they come along and they say, well, don't you agree with free will? Great. You should be a Molinist because you can't be a Calvinist because they deny free will. Look, look at all these Calvinists who say there's no such thing as free will because Calvinists are out there saying there's no such thing as free will. But and they what should we stop mean that. Is, they should stop. What they mean is there's no such thing as Libertarian free will. Right. Well, um, well, and, and so I, I make a distinction this way. The problem is, is all of us believe that we have a will. The question is, is it free? The, the, In what sense is it free? Exactly, free to do what? Exactly. I mean, because the, the issue is that will that we have is enslaved to sin before Christ. Amen. This is the thing that Romans makes very clear. And so the issue is, unless people are going to just deny that, you know, the will is affected by sin. And there are some who try to argue that. But Calvinists get away from the term free will, period, and talk about the will. We have a will that's enslaved to sin. That's the issue. I think that you're right, Tyler. And in, in, I think that people have given in on the terminology 
and it's their added confusion. And Calvinists are often larger to blame for this because they don't know their own position well enough to, to know when to say, no, we don't deny free will. We believe in biblical free will. Yeah. So what happens is the, the Molinists and the Arminian, they'll go and they'll say, look, here's all these Bible passages where someone's choosing something. Are you, you know, and, and they're talking to people who aren't trained. They're going to say, look, if you want to be on the side that, that affirms the Bible, that people make decisions and that we choose things, you should be on our side. And the person looks and be like, oh, well. Yeah, you know, I don't you know, think we're robots, so I must be a Molinist. But both sides yeah. believe that people choose things. That's the whole point. Every, yeah. every side believes we have a will. The question yeah. is, is it enslaved to sin or is it free from influence? So, I mean, the, yeah. the term free in free will means that you're free from influence. Right. And we're not. We're, we're influenced by the sin nature that indwells us. Yeah, but the, the, the unsuspecting layperson isn't going to go through that oh, nuance. Yeah, it, no. it, it reminds me of the I theonomist do. who comes along and says, hey, theonomy just means the love of God's law. You love God's law, don't you? You're <laughs> a theonomist. Right. It, it's the same, it's the same type well, of, of subtle equivocation right. that happens. It's an equi- right. yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's a logical fallacy called a fallacy of equivocation where you, wor- you use a word, the same word, two different meanings. Yeah. When, when they're saying you have an ability to choose, that's the will. But then they jump to it's a free will so you can choose God. That becomes a totally different thing. Now you're in a totally different meaning of free of of will. It doesn't mean that you can choose things between two different selfish choices that I make. I may have this choice or that choice. I choose the most selfish one as an unbeliever, right? That is because I am enslaved to sin. My will's not free, it's a will. When you put it together and it's free will, that means you have a will that is not influenced by anything. God has a free will. He has no influences outside his nature that affect his decision making. Well, he doesn't make decisions, he just knows it all. But but the point being is that that's what free means. And they, they say, well, you believe in a will, right? And you say yes, and then they go, oh, so you believe in free will. Two different things. That's why I always say what you do, there's three steps. Do apologetics. First thing, define terms. Use, uh, then make statements using those terms. And then you use, uh, third thing is scripture and logic to validate or invalidate the statements. But all definitions are paramount. Always define your terms. When someone says you believe in free will, I say define free will for me. So. That's right. So, uh, so we're going to, uh, what I want to do is we might be a good discussion. Uh, we do have someone that's been here waiting. He was here from last week, Ariel. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic, so this could fit in well in discussion with him. Uh, but before we do it, we're going to take a word from our sponsor. But so we are sponsored by my pillow. My pillow is a pillow that Matt and I both enjoy. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, I say I don't travel without it. I know that we've already had a couple people that contacted me this week. Do you really think my pillow is that good? Yes. Yeah. I really think it's that good. I do too. It's, it's hey, great. I, I, I'm not, I, I didn't even know that was your sponsor. I use it. It's great. It is. It is yeah. a great. It's, it, it, it always is the same. It's it, like, it doesn't matter how many times you sleep on it, how long you sleep. It's like the same firmness all the time. It's great. And if, if it gets dirty, you can, you can wash it. You can't do that with a feather pillow, you know? And so if you want to check out my pillow, go to, you can, uh, call 
five three nine six and you can call my pillow again that's one eight hundred nine four four five three nine six and you could tell them that you heard it on apologetics live uh, but they are a sponsor here and we're glad to have them it's part of being with uh, the the Matt slick live radio show which you can listen to five days a week Monday through Friday that also is a podcast that you can go search for Matt Slick or Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, and you can find the Matt Slick Live podcast and listen to it. But uh, they are uh, part of our partnership with the radio station there, and so we are very thankful for their support. So with that, I want to bring Ariel in. Ariel was here last week. Uh, we had some good discussion last week on Roman Catholicism and Mary and Sola Scriptura and a whole plethora of things. Uh, I don't know, uh, seeing from the chat, he may have some responses with some of the discussion you guys had. So Ariel, welcome. Do you have any questions for Matt and maybe even Tyler tonight? Hey, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Um, I have no immediate responses. I'm actually not a Molinist. Um, I think that it's possible that Molinism could be true. Uh, the church, the Catholic church itself doesn't have a position on this. Um, I'm also sympathetic toward, um, well, I'm not a Calvinist, but I'm sympathetic toward, um, the Augustinian view of predestination. So I don't have any like dog in this fight, but, um, I didn't exactly have a question on this, but if you want, I mean, if you had a question you wanted to ask me about this, I'm happy to, you know, humor you guys, but I guess I was more curious about, um, I don't know. Well, I think of a, if, sorry, you, if you have other questions. Go ahead and ask. You said you, had a, you were curious about something. What was it? Oh, um, <laughs> this might take us off the, the track you, you guys were on, but I was curious well, and, about, and um, it's okay because we're doing, you know, we want to start with the Molinism, but we're doing open Q and A. So, you, you know, whatever question you have. Oh, sure. sure. If others who want to come in, they can go to apologetics and there's a link to join there. Oh, excellent. Um, so last week we talked about authority and hopefully I won't take up too much of your time because I, I, I understand there might be other people that want to ask questions, but, um, since we talked about authority and we had touched a bunch of different topics last time, I guess the one topic we hadn't touched was, uh, the question of soteriology. Okay. Uh, about, I guess, justification by faith alone. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could give me, um, the evidence that you would have, like the most decisive evidence that you would have against, um, the Catholic view about justification by grace and works, made by faith and works. Yeah. Well, um, we go to Romans chapter four. I'll just read it to you. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So that's speaking of the vertical between God and man. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what was credited as righteousness? His belief. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. Notice what Paul does right here. He's saying belief, and he's introducing the idea of works. There's only two concepts here that we're dealing with, faith and works, belief and works. Belief and faith in the Greek, same word, pistis. Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. So if you say that faith and works are necessary, then faith plus works, and Paul the Apostle says, then that's, that's what's due to you. By your works. That's, that's the biblical definition here. The one who works his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So this is faith alone right there. 
not work, but believes. We have two options, faith and works. One's negated, the other's by itself. Uh, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So that's a very clear statement right there. Now, that's Romans 4. Let me go back to Romans 3.28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He very clearly says it right there as well. I can go to Galatians 2, 16, 21, uh, and other verses. But this is the basic uh, evidence right there. And that's what it says. And when the Roman Catholic Church says that you um, obtain salvation, paragraph 2068 in the Catholic Catechism, you obtain it by faith, baptism, and observance of the commandments, then uh, the observance of the commandments is what you work. Therefore, salvation is due to you based on your works. But there's a problem. Galatians, after... Three, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, from there to begin with, and I'll go to Galatians chapter 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to think that that which has been begun, uh, excuse me, who has bewitched you uh, before whose eyes Jesus Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified. So one thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice how what Paul does again. It's either works, the law, or faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what Catholics will do is they'll say that they could, their works contribute to their salvation. They're being perfected by the actual work of what they do. Um, and that's what, that's what it teaches. I quote you the references um, there. Now, and when you go to Galatians 5, there's something very interesting. I know I'm going through quickly, but this is the basic stuff. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Circumcision was a very small act. <laughs> no pun intended, uh, by which someone um, entered into the covenant with God. And uh, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify that every man who receives circumcision, that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. Notice the pun. Severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Now, notice what he says here. You're seeking to be justified by law. By doing what? One thing of the law. Doing one thing of the law, you're seeking to be justified by the law. That's what Paul's saying right there. One thing of the law. Now, according to the Roman Catholic Church, the things that are necessary for salvation, giving up riches and being a member of the church, penance, the sacraments, uh, keep observing the natural law, which the Ten Commandments reflect the natural law, uh, it's a works righteousness system. So therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is teaching a false gospel. The Roman Catholic Church is, is false. And if you or anybody were to believe official Roman Catholic theology regarding the doctrine of salvation, you are guaranteed to go to hell. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, so let me go to uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 27. So it's right before 28 that you quoted. Sure. Yeah. And uh, here it talks about, um, so I'll just quote, I'm using the ESV, by the way. He says, by what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So after uh, Romans 3.27, it goes on to um, Romans 4, where he talks about, he has a discussion about Abraham. So the way I interpret it is that in this context, he's talking about a law of works, a law that demands that, we fulfill all the stipulations. Show me the verse that are, for that. Well, a law, a law of works, a law, well, the law of Moses specifically. But Abraham was the law, law of, of Moses. Of works. So you're talking about the Mosaic law 
all 613 laws or what? Well, it's initially talking about a law of works because he's saying. Can you uh, give me an example of two or three so we can have it narrowed down a little bit more? Just, I mean, seriously, just a couple, three, like what? Oh, circumcision, for example. Okay. And what's another one? Dietary commandments. Okay. Okay. Those are two. Go ahead. Uh, but it also includes the moral commandments. So it's not simply the ceremonial commandments that are part of the Mosaic law, but also commandments like, uh, do not steal, do not commit okay. adultery, do not blaspheme. And, so, um, so what, then what let's, Paul's, let's apply it. I'm trying to understand your position. So let's apply it. Yeah. Uh, verse 27, Romans three, then where's your boasting is excluded by what kind of law? So you're talking about the dietary law, the mosaic, the moral law, that kind of law, law a law of works. Law that consists of, of, of works. Paul's saying that. Okay. You cannot, you're not, you cannot fulfill this law perfectly because even in the law, so if you look at the law of Moses, for example, he didn't it say doesn't that provide, there. no, 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 but I'm going to give you an example. Well, and I, and I can give you an example, uh, from Paul himself. Well, he quotes from, uh, from the Psalm, but if you look at, uh, Galatians, for example, um, see, Galatians 3. 10. He says, um, this is as many uh, as the works of the law are under yeah. a curse, for it is written, curses yeah. everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Exactly. So if you do exactly. one thing in the law, you are obligated to keep all. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So what and things do you have to Abraham, do to keep, what do you have to do to keep yourself saved? What do you have to do under the law? All the commandments, all the moral commandments. So if you feel so like you one are obligated of the moral then, commandments. You're obligated to keep the whole all the moral law in order to be saved? If you're under the Mosaic law, that's why that's no, what I'm talking about right now. Right, been... right now. Right now. What do you got? Oh do no, that? no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh, okay. I'm not obligated to keep. I should, which is it would be a great thing if I could, but I sin all the time, so <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely I, can't yeah. do that. I hear you on that one. Absolutely, I sin every day. Yeah, me too, unfortunately. By the way, that's why Abraham could not have been justified by works because he cannot fulfill the entire Mosaic law. Or in his Good. time, there was no Mosaic law back then. But even the moral commandments, he cannot have fulfilled all the moral commandments. Because there Why are many does the ways Catholic in, Church say you have to keep the, you, you uh, obtain salvation through faith, baptism, and observing the commandments? Well, the Catholic Church only re- requires that we keep uh, the commandments that uh, that uh, the the rejection of which leads to mortal sin. So there are many <coughs> sins that are me, not mortal sins that we're allowed to, that not we're allowed to, but we're we can commit without uh, falling out of salvation. So as long as we don't um, break it's any impossible. of the Ten I can Commandments... Prove it's, impossible. it's impossible to fall out of salvation, and I can prove that from Scripture. But look oh, okay. at what paragraph 2068 says. The Council of Trent teaches that the Ten Commandments are obligatory for Christians and that the justified man is still bound to keep them. The Second Vatican Council, Vatican Council confirms the bishops, successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the mission of teaching all peoples and of preaching the gospel to every creature so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Which commandments? Give me two or three of them. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Okay, and um, and being honest and bearing, you know, okay, so those things. So you have to keep the law to be saved, right? And what does Galatians three ten say? Under obligation to keep all the law. Everyone who does not commit, uh, does not uh, abide by the entire law. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. Now go to James two ten. I can read it for you if you want. 
Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I don't have it on me. But, yeah. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Absolutely. So, do you stumble in one point? Yes. Yes. I do too. Not accusing you of anything. No. So fine. then we're guilty of all. So then if you have to keep the commandments to be saved and you screw up in one, you're guilty of all of it. You're damned. And as Paul says, you receive circumcision. That's one act of the law. Then you're trying to be justified by the law. You have been severed from from Christ. Yourself, you have no salvation. That's so. The curse under the law is under the Mosaic law, which stipulates that you have to get the, uh, you have to fulfill every single commandment of the law. But the law of Christ really? does not require us to do that. James, I don't 2, have 8. to be perfect under the law of Christ. I don't have to be perfect. Yes, you, I just have to yes, have saving do. faith. I just have to have saving faith. You have to be perfect, Matthew five forty eight. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he says in First Peter one sixteen, Be holy, for I am holy. Uh, this is James two eight. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. That's Leviticus nineteen eighteen, which Jesus quotes in Matthew twenty two thirty nine. So that's obviously New Testament that he references he's talking about. If you are fulfilling present tense that law of the Old Testament, which Jesus himself uh, said. To do, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicting by the law under the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yes, stumbles in one place, become guilty of all. He's talking present tense, not about some Old Testament law requirement. So let me find. Um, he goes on there, to say. So for, Paul, Paul says, I can't find the exact quote, but he says that if we fulfill the commandment that to love our neighbors as ourselves, we, we, we fulfill the entire law in one commandment. But that's only because we're Good. doing it through, do you through do faith it? in Christ. Through faith do you in do Christ. It? Do you do you keep do you love your neighbor as yourself the way Jesus did? That's the standard. Not as Jesus did. I'm trying to find the exact verse. Okay. I, I, I know. I think you, you do know which which reference I'm referring to, right? I think it's in Galatians. I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Fulfill yeah. The, yeah. Fulfill the, yeah, the whole, whole law. law. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a sense in which we do fulfill the whole law, but there's a sense in which. We cannot fulfill every single individual commandment of the law, of the Mosaic law, but it's fulfilled through Christ in us, even though we might individual, individually fail in individual commandments. Galatians 5.14. Christ, yeah, 5.14. There you go. Yeah. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing it? Through Christ. Even though I may sin every day, because I have saving faith, Christ's righteousness which is infused in me, allows me to fulfill the law in that way, even though I sin all the time. So then, so then you're saved based on these deeds, uh, these fulfilling the law that you're doing in your state of righteousness in Christ? By abstaining from mortal sin, from serious mortal sin. Okay. Yes. Even though I may be yes. every day. I'm going to yeah. put a verse in for you. Yeah. <clears throat> He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So I just said, so I said to you, and you said yes. So, mm-hmm. so you're saved by, on the basis of the, the things that you do, or I don't remember the exact wording I said, the deeds that you've mm-hmm. done in your righteousness. And I said, I actually added the words in Christ on purpose. Um, and that's what it means there. And you said, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just quoted you, well, Titus 3 5. It, it, you agreed it and, and Paul's saying, no, that's not it. It's not on that basis. But Paul in Titus isn't saying that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in Christ, in righteousness through Christ. He doesn't say that. He says, which we have done in righteousness. So I'm assuming he's referring to our own righteousness apart from Christ. Um, but what, 
but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which he have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured yeah. out upon us richly through the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So obviously talking about Christ and righteousness in Christ, because we have a righteousness that's not our own, Philippians 3, 9. You cannot have your own righteousness derived from the law. See, look, you're going to be wanting to stand before God. What are you going to say to him? You're, I mean, before the... The infinitely holy God, and, you're going to, and he's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Because he saved me through the washing of regeneration, and I cooperated with him, with his grace. <laughs> you cooperated with his grace? Okay, what you need to do is stand up, and you need to raise your hands up into the air and take some bows. You need to bow before all of creation. I'll do that. All do the that. angelic realm and bow that you were able to cooperate with the grace of God to obtain that salvation. You are so wonderful. So, by the way, I haven't mentioned my soteriological view. So I might be an Augustinian about salvation. I might believe you that. You can't be if you're holding that view that you just said. What you just Wait, said is a false gospel. God can give us the grace, the irresistible grace to allow us to cooperate with him. I mean, no, that's what irresistible grace is, to allow, to allow us to get that. He gives us the irresistible grace to allow us to cooperate. What's irresistible grace? It cannot be resisted. It's efficacious. It never fails. So then God's grace allows you to do something. Uh, it should be God's grace causes you to do something. Sure, sure. That would be a better way of phrasing okay. it then. Sure. So then his grace causes Bob to believe and Frank to, and doesn't work on Frank? And Augustine would say that. God doesn't uh, supply efficacious or irresistible grace to everybody. So he does? Yeah. Or he does not? He does not say that. Uh, okay. He does not do he that. He supplies okay. irresistible grace to everybody. Yeah. He does not. That, I'm trying to understand you properly. He does not do that. Okay, so God picks and chooses who he's going to save then irresistibly. Yeah, for the Augustinian, yeah. Okay, for the Calvinist and for the biblical person. That's what it is. That's not a, a Roman Catholic position. It is actually. Believe it or no, not, not, it is. No, it's not. I can send you links about this. There's a view called Thomism. Love to see it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely send you a link. Uh, let me try to if, find it. If then. it's on the Vatican website or some official thing, hey, I will modify my view. I keep doing that over the years as people correct me and in, in minutia and things. That's that's fine. I have no problem with that. Please do. I'd be glad to tackle that as well and demonstrate that there. You know, if I'm misunderstanding them, I want to be. I want to understand it properly. But from what I understand from what you're saying, it's inconsistent with Roman Catholic soteriology because the process of salvation in Catholicism is long and arduous. I can read it to you. I t- it took me two weeks to write yeah, one yeah. article, one paragraph. Would you like me to tell you what that is? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So what I'm going to do, process of process, salvation. Come on, Carm. There we go. The summary of the process of salvation in Roman Catholicism. This took me two weeks to put together. So I have... And I can put the link here, and you guys can follow along with me if you want to. I have it documented from Roman Catholic sources. And then what I did at the bottom of the article, I quoted the sources and put them there so you could read them yourself, at least all the catechism references. So to begin with, God grants actual grace to a person, which enables him to believe in Christ. Catechism, paragraph 2000. And he also, and also believe in the truth of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1814. After belief, the person is, must be baptized, which is necessary for salvation, paragraph 1257. So I'm going to stop reading the paragraph numbers. I'm just going to continue to read. This baptism erases original sin, 
unites a person with Christ, infuses grace into the person, and grants justification. After baptism, he's saved. But to maintain his salvation, it is necessary for him to perform good sacraments, which provide grace that is proper to each sacrament. This is necessary in order to maintain infused grace. However, grace can be lessened by venial sins or or, uh, completely lost by mortal sins. Venial sins removed part of the infused grace, but not the saving grace known as sanctifying grace. To remedy the problem of venial sins, the Catholic is to take the Eucharist, which the Church teaches forgives venial sins. He must also perform various penance, which must be done in concert with perfect contrition. But there is a problem. Sin requires a punishment. Even though sins are absolved by a priest, the punishment due to a person because of his sin can, be, can remain. To deal with that remaining punishment, indulgences are administered to deal with the punishment due to the guilt of the sin already forgiven. These indulgences draw upon the, quote, good works, the blessed Virgin Mary, close quote. Oh, I just... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, open quote, of Christ and the saints, close quote, as to obtain, open quote, the remission of the temporal punishment due for their sins, close quote. Furthermore, the indulgences are the dead who are in purgatory. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, this is always hard for me to read. Now, in case the Catholic has committed a mortal sin, then all his infused grace is lost. To regain his disgrace, he must partake of special penance, since it helps restore grace that was lost. To conclude, the Roman Catholic must have faith, participate in the sacraments, take the Eucharist, keep the commandments, perform penance, and do indulgences in order to attain, maintain, and regain his salvation, as well as reduce the punishment due to him for the sins of which he's already been forgiven. Can I interrupt you real quick? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, So that actually, so that quote is actually not inconsistent with... um, irresistible grace or what Catholics call efficacious, believe it or not, believe it or not. Okay. So okay. to give an example, for the, so for example, Luther thought that we could lose our salvation by losing our faith. Luther was wrong. Okay. But he's, so Luther famously did believe in predestination though. Yes. And yet he did believe that we could lose our salvation. I went to a Lutheran he, college. Oh, okay. Luther but he was wasn't, wrong. In, he was not inconsistent in that view. You could, yes, you he could was. conceivably, you could conceivably argue that God gives us Irresistible grace for a certain period of time, but then uh, shrinks back from giving us irresistible grace, and then we fall. Irresistible grace in Reformed theology means that the grace that God moves upon you to cause you to be born again, you cannot successfully resist that grace. And Luther was wrong. Okay. I have a bachelor's degree from an LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod um, College. And I took all the, not all, but all the theology classes I could under Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, one of the top theologians in the LCMS church at that time, denomination. Mm -hmm. And I learned the theology well and uh, pretty well. And, um, you know, we didn't yell at each other and scream and things like that. But here, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And notice he says, raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So the raise him up on the last day is tied with verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he's given me, I will lose none. That everyone who will raise him up on the last day. 
Now, if you can be lost, then Jesus failed to do the will of the Father. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he's given me, I lose nothing. So the will of the Father is that Jesus lose none. If Jesus loses one, then he's failed to do the will of the Father he sent. So there's actually different historic interpretations on John 6. One of them was actually... Uh, That's Augustine. what he says right there. They disagree I, I, with I that. They're wrong. Go ahead. Yeah. So Augustine, <laughs> Augustine actually uh, argued that um, those who are given by the Father to the Son are simply the predestined to glory. So all he has in his purview in the scope of that statement are those who are already predestined to glory. So, he, so then you're, then what you're saying then is God only gave the predestined ones and the predestined ones cannot be lost. Yeah, by the Father to the Son. Yeah, that's one interpretation. I'm not saying that holds to this one, but the, I think that's Can you show me where it says the predestined ones in there? I mean, the first thing you do is you look at what it says and you move out from there. Okay. So the reason why I think Augustine held this view is because the context, the very context is people who had once believed in him, but they no longer believed in him. So no. he's trying to explain their unbelief. That's the context. Jesus is trying to explain the unbelief of the crowds. John. And so that's why. Okay. Let me show you something here that uh, I'm going to ask you a trick question. Are you ready? Sure. All right. Uh, does God know everyone? No. It's a trick question. He does not know. Does everyone. God know everyone? No. Are you there? No. No. I can't hear you. No. You're right. No. He doesn't know you. Get with me. I never knew you. Right? Okay. Yeah. So there's a sense in which God doesn't know, doesn't know you, and of course He knows all things, and yeah. And so uh, Galatians four eight and nine. When you did not know God, you served by nature those which are are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather are known by God, now you serve the true and living God. So we had the word gnosko in Greek to know. And forno is prognosco. God only knows believers. He never says he knows an unbeliever except in one place in the Gospels. Jesus says, I know you. You have your father, the devil. And he speaks into the Pharisees. He's just, he, so there's no place where Jesus just said, or God says to anybody, just a simple sentence, I know you. And it's of an unbeliever. It does not occur. And to know, gnosco, when he knows you, it means it's, you're saved. Now look, Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conform to the image of his son. The foreknown ones are only the ones that God had known salvifically ahead of time. They are the same group that's predestined. It wasn't the ones that simply he knew, God knew by knowing the future, which group of people is going to end up believing in him and retain their, their grace and get it reinfused. And so then they're predestined to the son because that would be, flaming heresy. And the reason it would be heresy is because God is then showing partiality. Let me show you something. I go to Romans 2.11, there's no partiality with God. But what I really want to do is go to James 2.2. A man comes in your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. There comes a poor man in dirty clothes. You pay special attention to blah, 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 blah. Okay, you know that's, that, that thing. So the, what he's Condemning here is the partiality based on what a, a person possesses, what a person is, or anything like that. God shows no partiality to people. He does not judge them for, worthy for salvation because of their ability to believe in him. 
that would be a quality within them that's a good thing that he then saves them because of that quality. That's showing partiality, which the scriptures condemn. If it's because they are the ones who are wise enough to be able to come back to Christ and get grace infused through the sacramental system, it's called sacerdotalism, then what he's doing is he's showing partiality on them because he said, these are the ones who are good enough to make it. I'm going to give them to the Son, and they're worthy of salvation. That's partiality. It violates what James is talking about. So, I mean, I, I could respond to that. Do you mind if I ask you another question, or should I respond to that? Sure, sure. Can what do you want question? to do? What do you want to do? I don't care. Okay, sure, sure, sure. I don't want to make it seem like I'm sidestepping the issue. No, that's um, right. So, you had quoted earlier uh, Galatians chapter 5. Yep. And uh, you quoted, uh, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So you get earlier mentioned, you get quoted from John 6, um, in order to argue that um, all of the saints, even those, you know, every single saint who is uh, regenerated will persevere to the end. But from the plain reading of this text, it seems to imply that you can be severed from Christ and you can fall away from God's favor. How would you respond to that? Two issues. One is you have to understand covenantal theology to know what it means to be in Christ. And be in Christ could be have a covenantal aspect. But I don't really like to lean that way. I think in Christ means that you're actually saved. But nevertheless, you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. Are people who seek to be justified by the law really Christians to begin with? They could be initially Christian. Seeking to be justified by the law, they are Christians. No, so you can initially not seek to be justified by the law, but then you can be tempted toward that direction, and then so then eventually, wait a minute, you mean they were initially justified by faith alone? You can initially be a non-Judaizing Christian and then be tempted toward uh, being a Judaizer. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's a common response to that. And then I go to First John 2.19. They went out from us because they never were of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. And what Paul's doing here is simply telling us that the Judaizers, those who want to, you to keep ceremonial aspects of the law, that the covenant community, they've been severed from Christ, they've fallen from grace. But when they say fallen from grace, well, he says that, does it mean that they were saved? Because Judas, you got to understand, Judas as an example, he was never saved to begin with. Jesus says he was an unbeliever from the beginning, a, a devil from the beginning. I forgot the exact wording. And he experienced the grace of God. Just as Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 talks about, tasted the heavenly gift, tasted this, and they've fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And then I can go to Second Corinthians seven ten, which talks about true repentance and false repentance. It is all, there's a lot here that goes on. But the problem is that, you know, you went back to this. You waited for this. You waited to go back here because you want to show that you can lose your salvation. But Jesus says, no, you cannot because he can't lose any. And your response to that is, it's the predestined ones, which is why I showed you that the predestined ones are the ones that are also the foreknown ones. And I tried to, to show you again, I go to James 2, 2 through 4, that God does not give people to Christ for salvation based on a good quality in them. That's partiality, which the scriptures condemn. And I think we went over this last time in Colossians 2.14. Remember that verse? Yeah. Okay. Colossians 2.14, for those who don't know, um, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's our sin debt. You agreed. It was a sin debt that was canceled. If it's canceled at the cross, all of our sin had to be canceled. Otherwise, you can't be justified. Mm -hmm. If all of our sin debt's canceled, then you're justified. 
But if you go to hell, that means not all of your sin debts canceled. Then you couldn't be justified. Yeah. You can't lose your Be- salvation. Before we get to Colossians, well, I just wanted to... But what what uh, I want to do, because we do have one more person that's been waiting. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I just I want to give you one, I'm going to give you one verse. Uh, and, and don't, don't leave because maybe the other person has a shorter question. Uh, but one clear verse for you would be, uh, first John 2 19. Because you went out from among us, right? Well, this is what God says. Uh, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So when people leave the faith, as you're saying, it it exposes they were never of the faith in the first place. All right. So so stick around. I'm going to add Edison's been uh, has been waiting for a while and I want to bring his volume up. And uh, so, Edison, you have you have some questions here. Uh, yes, uh, can we? Yes. Yep. Guys, okay. are you there? Maybe what you could do it's it look, probably your bandwidth is a little um uh is a, is might be a problem. You might want to turn your video off, and that'll help with your because I think you're on a phone device. A uh, phone or a tablet, and if you yeah 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 if you turn your video off, that'll help with the bandwidth. There you go. All right. All right. Hi, I'm in the Philippines. Oh, you're in the Philippines. Cool. Yeah, I was a former uh, KGV only, but oh. I am now um, a reform. Good. And. Um, I, one of my, um, my kids' friends kept asking me questions regarding um, It's a little hard to. Um, um, five. You're you're breaking up quite a bit. Uh yeah. I'm sorry. I just wanted to um, just a little, just one verse. I want to hear what Matt or what uh, or Andrew said. Okay, so you want to hear what we say on a on one verse? Yeah, which yes. verse? Yes, sir. That would be Acts chapter number seventeen, verse no. Seventeen what? Acts seventeen. Thirty. Thirty. Acts number thirty. Yeah. God commands everyone everywhere to repent. Yes. If to feel. Maybe you could type your question out in the chat room there. Yeah, there's. if you look at the bottom of your phone, uh, there will be a chat uh, icon, and you can type in the question. We could then read it. And, um, yeah. So that's one of the things with um, – sometimes with well, – yeah. <laughs> Why would God – are you asking why would God command everyone to repent if he has to grant them repentance? Yes, yes. Okay, I can answer that. Or for you, if you only know some, that would be one of our questions. Thank you. Could so you repeat did I, did I get that question right? Is yes. That what you, okay. Yes. So yes, why sir, would um, 
command everyone to repent if he has to grant repentance per Second Timothy 2.25? I think that's the question. Is that the question? Yes? Yes, I think that's it. Okay. The reason is, is because God is a standard of righteousness and people are all over, that's- everywhere are obligated to turn from sin. Whether they're able to or whether they're not is not the issue. God is the standard of righteousness. God is the standard of perfection. That's why he says in 1 Peter 1.16, be holy for I am holy. He says be holy. Can we be holy? We can't be holy. Holiness. Holy. Sinless. Okay. Perfection in everything. Holiness. Be holy because I'm holy. We can't do that, yet God commands it because he's the standard of righteousness, not us. He does not lower his standard for us. Therefore, he commands everyone everywhere to repent. That's the right thing to do. They are obligated to do it. That's just a statement of fact. But then he specifically grants that ability to the elect. Brother Matt, and God bless you with your ministry. Sure, man. Hey, I was in uh, the Philippines about four years ago in the southern area, Tacloban, I think it was, and some other other uh, and those lizards over there, uh, um, uh, oh, like that. They do that. Oh man, that was something else. Gonna, uh, Justin Peters and I will be, uh, Lord willing, going to the Philippines in May. Oh, good. We're going to be in Manila for a week, and then Cebu. For a couple of days, I think two or three days. So, uh, yeah, I'm from Cebu. You're from Cebu. Okay. So we're, we'll be, um, I can tell you the dates. Uh, it'll be middle of May. We're going to be in Cebu. Uh, do you know who Justin Peters is? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be, Justin Peters. yeah, we'll be in Cebu May 28th, 27th, 28th timeframe. That we'll be in Cebu. I think on on that Tuesday uh, we'll be doing a seminar some somewhere. I don't know where yet, but if you keep tuned to this uh, show, you'll I'm sure you'll you'll get details. Because I'm sure as I get more, we'll we'll provide it. So maybe we can meet out there in the Philippines. God bless you. Abu. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna add. Right, bye bye. What, uh, maybe are, are probably the last, uh, last caller for tonight or for last questioner is, uh, seeking the narrow way. So, uh, you're, you're now on the show if you want to unmute yourself. Hello. Hello. Hi. I just had a question about, um, as far as Calvinism is concerned. Uh, whenever I hear Calvinist preachers, they always talk about how God is doing everything for his own glory. Um, and every time I hear that, I I think of the two Bible verses, um, 1 John 4, 8, God is love, and 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not self-seeking. So how is it that God would be doing everything for his own glory if by definition he is not self-seeking? The greatest act of love is to lay your life down for your friend, uh, um, John fifteen thirteen. The nature of love is to give, uh, John three sixteen. Um, love does not seek after its own in a selfish way. And that's what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name and whom I've created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, were created for his glory. 
And that's what the Bible says. The greatest glory of God is expressed through the work of Christ, predestination, election, and things like that. And so the nature of God is love for John 4, 8. He is love, but he's also the greatest being in existence. And so he also glorifies himself through all of creation because he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. One of the mistakes some people make sometimes is to say, well, for example, uh, God is love. Therefore, he would never send anybody to hell. And what they're doing is they're f- failing to recognize that God is love and holy and just and merciful and patient and he gets angry and he's kind. And all of these things work together perfectly. And so he does create us for his glory. And yet he's also loving at the same time. And the greatest the greatest thing in the universe is God. Not that he's a thing or an object, but the greatest is God. And so he deserves all glory, all um, admiration, all praise, and all things worth remember. And he's also loving in the process as he saves the elect. And then the unbelievers, the non-elect, go to hell. And that will be for the glory of God as well. Okay, thank you. Sure. So um, with that, we'll, we can – you have any other questions? Well, Taylor's a, a good, competent uh, Calvinist. Maybe he could add to something like that. Taylor, you want to add anything to that? <laughs> no, I think uh, I think that was a great answer. I think um, however, however we want to reconcile it, I mean, God seeking his own glory and doing things to um, to glorify his own name is just a common theme throughout the entire Bible. We see uh, Jesus' entire ministry was about um, – uh, not only laying down his life for for the church, but to uh, present them to God um, to glorify Him. So, um, however we want to reconcile those two things, uh, we sh- we shouldn't allow um, one one side of our theology to kind of dismantle the other side. Absolutely, you have your balance. You have a diamond, and blue only comes out at one angle. It doesn't mean the whole thing is blue. It just means one part of the refraction is that way. We look at the God as a whole, not as a part. Let me ask you a question. Seeking uh, the narrow way, um, do you do you believe that a child should obey their parents? Yes, I do. Is it is it because of their position as the parent that would demand the obedience? I think that's a component of it. Yeah. Well, God is the creator of everything. Correct. Correct. Okay, so by by the very nature of who he is, it, it would require that everything in the world, everything in his creation, because it's more than just a, a parent relationship. As 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 that might be the closest thing we can compare. He created everything out of nothing, and therefore all of creation gives glory to him because that's what it was created for. Not in a selfish sense, but in the sense where he created it. So the natural response of all of creation should be to give the creator glory. I do agree with that. I don't see, um, I'm going to do more research into it, but I just never saw selfish as being a component to the definition of self-seeking. It's not selfish. No, no, no. It's, It's not selfish. Think about this. If God is the greatest of all beings, and he is the one who is most perfectly majestic and holy, then isn't it logical to say that seeking him would be the greatest thing and praising him would be the greatest thing? 
The answer will be, well, yeah. And since he knows this, he's going to let you know that as well, that praising him is the greatest thing. I I do agree with that, but what I'm saying is like in the um in the Bible verse it says love is not self seeking. The definition of self seeking I never saw selfish as a part of that definition. So it's not when I say that, I don't think God well, would be selfish if he were self seeking. Though well, one, of the, one of the things about being selfish and not being self seeking in that type of love relationship is that that person isn't um it in our in our relationship with our spouses and our relationship with people, it's, it's the fact that we're not kind of running roughshod other people. We're not, we're not seeking ourselves right. over others. We're not, we're, we're right. not, um, we're not, uh, you know, being tyrant over other people and, and seeking ourselves to the detriment of others. It, it's what Matt's getting at. It, it, it's, 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 it's not necessarily the fact that God as the most glorious being isn't worthy and seeking his own glory. I mean, we could, we could go through a ton of passages like Isaiah where he, you know, he says that he, he's bringing in every name that calls his name, who he created for his glory. I mean, through, throughout the entire Bible, there's, there's just passage after passage after passage that God tells us that his intentions are to bring glory to himself and glory to his name. Okay. And that's why I was trying to say it's not because of, it's because of who he is, his nature and what he's done, the creator. Yes. That it's not a selfishness. It's a nat, it, it is a natural response. Right. That makes sense? It does. It does. And I never saw that, that idea as being selfish from God's point of view. I mean, if I understand he absolutely deserves glory and there's nothing else that matters as much as that. So Amen. I think it's just a matter of my understanding of the term that I need to work on. Okay. Good for you. Well, good. I mean, and, and that's what we're trying to do here on this show is to be able to hopefully provide answers. I know, uh, there's someone on, in the uh, YouTube that, that said they weren't smart enough to come in. Uh, the, the recount, Why are you here, Andrew? A good question. Uh, I, you know, I make you look good, and that's hard to do. Well, I wouldn't say because <laughs> it doesn't really help a whole bunch. You're so far down. You get to long insults and forget it. <laughs> Losing steam. Yeah, there's an insult that just failed. <laughs> yeah, it was no good. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, for folks who want to ask, I mean, Matt does the regular radio show. Um, and really what it is sometimes on the radio, you don't have time for long questions. You don't have time for some of the back and forth like we had with Ariel, um, and, and being able to come back in week after week and, and continue discussions. And so because of that, that's what we're trying to do here is to, to give a platform where we can do that. Um, and so if you have questions, if you have things are just, you know, you want to, sometimes some of the questions are too detailed or too long to, to get through in a, you know, seven minute radio segment. <laughs> um, and so that's what we're here for. We have two hours. Sometimes we're going to take longer. Sometimes, you know, you know, if there's, you know, more people, we're going to take shorter, but you can always come back in. So, uh, so, I mean, please come, come back in if you have more questions. Um, and for other folks, uh, we're going to, we're going to start to wrap up next week, Matt. I'm not a hundred percent sure whether I will be here. I'm going to try, but, there is something going on next weekend, but you're not, you know, next weekend you had the, the prime, prime opportunity. If ever there was an opportunity for Matt Slick to buy me dinner, next Sunday night would have been it. If you wow. would have flown out here, 
I would have, I would have gladly, gladly let you buy a meal for me, uh, next Sunday night. I, I would have. Oh, for your, what, your daughter's wedding? That's right. That's right. Oh. So if you, if you wanted to pay that meal, I, I would be glad. <laughs> already all paid for anyway. No, it isn't. It is not. I, I only paid $500 down. I have the rest to pay <laughs> Sunday night. Oh, I get it. Yeah, you selfish person. <laughs> yeah, God may not be selfish, but <laughs> hey, it, it's your chance. It's your chance. You got the invite to the wedding. You yes. could have. You could have come. <laughs> we got two. Yeah. So uh, I know the activities are starting Thursday. Thursday, Friday, uh, but we'll definitely have a show next week. Uh, we just might get, uh, Vincent or John to fill in. If not me, uh, but I'm probably going to try to make it, uh, maybe at that point I might want to do the show to get away from wedding plans. There, there's like flowers all over my house. Uh, oh yeah. My, I, we have two rooms like almost dedicated to, um, wedding <laughs> stuff. So I, I told my daughter, I, I can't wait to get my, my gym back. I have a, a weight room with a treadmill, and I can't wait to be able to get in there and actually start using yeah, you it. You don't use it anyway, so what's the big deal? No, I mean, I, actually, you know, I've lost 20 pounds since the summer, since the last time we've seen each other. Since, since, oh, uh, you're down to 340? Yeah, sound like that. <laughs> hey, actually, speaking of which, uh, I don't know if you heard the news, Matt, but the Mormon church came out with a statement that they do not want People to they do not want uh, Mormon churches or Latter Day Saint churches to do pageants anymore. I I think that the Manti pageant that you've been going to for years, as as we know that the Mormons have been coming in less and less numbers, the Christians have been coming in bigger and bigger numbers, and there's been a lot of uh, well, well, let's just say in that area of Manti is one of the the lowest Mormon. Uh, areas for utah and many many of us think it's because of the mormon miracle pageant where so many christians hundreds of christians go out to evangelize and uh so we think that might be the reason they're saying nope we shouldn't do pageants anymore um so they they this next year may be the the a big year because it might be the last pageant in man well, I'm going to be down in arizona lord willing that's our plan so i have to fly up to uh, salt lake and See if they can arrange that to get yeah. there. Yeah. Now that we finally found a great place to to stay, that <laughs> you know that place wasn't bad, although we did get pretty sick. I don't know, but uh, that's right. Yeah, I all of us got. got sick. Yeah, we were all pretty violently sick when we, by the time we got home, that was bad. Yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's right. We were all. Yeah, I was out for two days. You were out for. Oh. Now I remember. Yeah, I lost five pounds in one day. I was thinking of having, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, uh, some, some resources for folks. There's been a lot of articles that have been shared in the, in the links. They'll be in the show notes as well from karm.org. Um, we've talked a little about Roman Catholicism. I want to encourage you to, to pick up my book, What Do They Believe? It is a systematic theology of the major Western religions, so you'd be able to figure out what Roman Catholicism believes along with Judaism and uh, Islam, Mormonism, which we were just speaking of, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christianity. So it's a resource you'd be able to pick up. 
Uh, you can go to whatdotheybelieve.com. Now, Matt is showing uh, his latest book, which is Atheistica. Now, here's the thing, Matt. I'm trying to figure this out. We we put a challenge out to anybody who wants to come up with a good intro for this show, and they would get a free copy of Atheistica. Why is it that nobody wants your book, Matt? I, I think maybe we got to see if if I gave away a free copy of my book, would we suddenly get, <laughs> try suddenly get some entries? Okay, we'll, we'll we'll liven it up. So, how about one each? That's what I was just going to suggest. So, I will give a copy of What Do We Believe, and Matt will give a copy of Atheistica to whoever can come up with the best intro song, intro music, and whatnot for our show. Um, so, if you are creative in that way and want a free copy of Atheistica and a free copy of What Do We Believe, then you can. Huh? Autographed. Autographed. Even better. I will sign Matt's name. It makes it, you know. Well, you know, when I sign my own name, I have to make sure it looks like my wife's signature of my name. So I've got it down pretty well now. <laughs> How's your wife doing, by the way? We we haven't gotten an update for a while. Um, she cracked another rib sneezing a few days ago, and now she's literally walking around with a Velcro belt. It's about this wide around her abdomen area. Um, and she was actually downstairs with a neighbor going through stuff or preparing for the move, you know, five months in advance going through papers and all kinds of stuff. So she's sitting down moving. And she drove yesterday and did some things and, and stuff. But, um, you know, she's just having to move very slowly. Well, okay, here's the real question to see how her health is doing. Has she smacked you, like backhanded you yet? No. No, so she was, she will still be praying for her. She has some healing to do. Uh, she did not give me an arm hit in months. So, so you plan to go down to, um, to Arizona. Does that mean, does that mean you're going to like ruin Vocab Malone's neighborhood? Is that how that's going to work? What we're going to do is put the house up for sale in March, and depending on a few things, uh, when it sells, then we're going to pack up. Um, we'll, you know, we'll have two weeks to pack up, kind of a thing. You know, you've got to get out of the house, and um, and then what we'll do is we'll put pods, have pods delivered, and uh, we'll just have a, a weekend where we just ask all my friends just to just come out and help, and we'll just blitzkrieg the place. And Anik will be supervisor and point, point, do, do. And then um, we're going to get a, a U-Haul and get my office stuff. And then we're going to um, clean the house out. Anyway, then drive down to Fountain Hills. And we have a place to stay there without any contract or anything. We have a friend. And um, we'll stay there while we're looking for a house in the uh, Phoenix that, area. That was a very tactful way of avoiding the question. I, I, what? So the, the the question is, are you going to go to Malone's neighborhood? That's what I want to know. It could be his, I don't even know his neighborhood is. <laughs> well, I, but I picked him up in his neighborhood, but I don't even know where I was. I just had an address and a GPS and, and uh, you know, went there. He said, vocab says, no, he's way in the desert. Uh, whereas I live downtown in a real city slicker. <laughs> you know. Yeah, Fountain Hills is uh, northeast of Phoenix, about, uh, I'd say, 20, 30 minutes range. But, um, you know, it was fun meeting uh, Vocab. It was nice. And uh, he's not as stupid as I thought he might have been. He was a pretty good guy. He's got a pretty good vocabulary. Is that what you're I, – I was testing him, but, uh, you know, uh, and he's not a Susquehannaian like me. But he certainly knows uh, 
um, Black Hebrew Israelite stuff. He's a good guy. Yeah, we do belong. He's a good guy. And uh, so what I'm going to do, I gave a bad link there, Matt. So there will be an after show. The after show is put on by guys known as the council and the council will do an after show. They have a YouTube channel that you can go and watch, uh, go to YouTube and search for the council. Uh, we'll put a link. I just put the link in Matt for you to jump over there. And once you, you head out, I will uh, put the link into YouTube for folks who are watching on YouTube. Um, and so you guys can join the after show. And for those of you who are here in the room right now, if you guys want to join the after show, you're more than welcome to go over there. So uh, Apologetics Live is a ministry of striving for eternity. Uh, we do it in co- coordination with CARM.org. And so this is something we do every Thursday night, 8 to 10 Eastern time. You can join in anytime you want. You go to ApologeticsLive.com. And we'll always put the links to join just before we go live, uh, just the way that uh, the show works. And so you just have to go to apologeticslive.com. We made it easy for you. It's the same site every week. You go there, the links, you can watch it there, and there will always be links to join just before. We want to thank Tyler Villa for coming and sharing with us some of his knowledge. want to encourage you to, to check out his podcast, The Freed Thinker. That's Enzina D. Freed thinker because he now as a christian is freed to think and uh so it's a great podcast even though he's a presbyterian and i disagree with a lot of his views you know but uh and he writes against uh, my views but that's okay uh we we don't mind getting together for dinner when i get out to california every year (laughs) kind of our yearly thing but uh so check out the freed thinker if you want to listen to this in podcast form the apologetics live is a podcast you can search for apologetics live you can share it on social media and uh that is one of the things that we are trying to do as part of the christian podcast community which is a community of christian podcasts if you are a podcaster we're probably going to be opening up pretty soon to uh, other Christian podcasters to join. We're doing that in a slow progression. But uh, if you're interested in Christian podcasts, you can go and do a search for Christian podcast community on whatever podcast app you have. And that will get you uh, really all the podcasts that are in the community on one feed. I do want to encourage you to subscribe, though, to my podcast, The Rap Report. That's rap with two Ps. No, it is not about rap music. It is a play on my last name, Rappaport. So it's Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report. So if you want to subscribe to that, uh, that would be wonderful. I just posted the after show link in the room or in the, the YouTube channel. And so we want to thank you guys for coming out. Thank you for uh, asking questions and whatnot. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 2911 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area. 
Can you answer the following questions for your children or for the person to whom you are witnessing? Number one, is the New Testament reliable? Two, can you explain the Trinity to me? Three, how is Jesus both God and man? And a slew of other questions you will be able to answer if you get Andrew Rappaport's new book, What Do We Believe? It will help you a ton. Get your copy at whatdowebelievebook.com, whatdowebelievebook.com. 